Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. I drop a new episode every other week discussing murders from different decades. This season, going over cases from 1990 through 1999. This is the last episode of season four. I really hope y'all thought the 1990s cases were interesting and thought-provoking. Going forward, things will be looking a little different. I plan to release season five this summer, and I'm going to release the whole season, or at least half the season, all at one time. In the meantime, if you'd like to support my show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps more people to find it. And I also have a link to where you can buy me a coffee. I really enjoy creating this podcast, and for all who listen, any support is greatly appreciated. Now on to today's story, which is of a male murderer from 1999. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas, true crime. In 1999, Jack Kavarkian, an American pathologist who publicly championed a terminal patient's right to die by physician-assisted suicide, and said that he assisted at least 130 patients to that end, was convicted of the second-degree murder of Thomas Yoke. That same year, Boris Yeltsin resigned as president of Russia and was replaced by Vladimir Putin. Another thing that happened in 1999 was a man whose wife passed out after an argument and never woke up. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. On January 6th, 1999, Melissa Wang was brought into the emergency room by her husband, Frank Xiu. She was unconscious and had a bluish skin tone. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation and intubation were performed unsuccessfully, and she died shortly after midnight. At this time, whenever there was a death at the hospital, the police were called. San Antonio officer Petrosky read Shu his Miranda rights and then interviewed him regarding the circumstances of Melissa's death, in which Shu attributed her death to a seizure. A detective by the name of Giddings also conducted a brief inquiry at Shu's home. In his 4 a.m. report, Giddings concluded there was no sign of a struggle. And Dr. Hirsch Melissa's attending physician concluded Melissa's death had been caused either by cardiac arrhythmia or an aneurysm. However, sometime during the morning of January 6th, the medical examiner determined the cause of Melissa's death to be strangulation. And by 10.55 a.m. on January 6th, an investigation was opened into Melissa's death. Detective Holcomb was assigned to the case. When Holcomb reviewed the file, he noticed it consisted majorly 
of Petrovsky's and Giddings' apparent sudden death reports. But after Holcomb's partner, Detective Escobar, informed him of the medical examiner's conclusion that the cause of death was strangulation, Holgan changed the offense classification in the previous reports to strangulation. By noon on January 6th, the two detectives asked to meet Shu at his home. Once there, Holgan asked Shu to sign a consent to search form, to which Shu complied. He was then asked to show where Melissa collapsed. Again, he complied. Detective Holgum and the four or five evidence technicians who searched the house during the remainder of the afternoon found no evidence of a struggle or any other evidence that Melissa had been strangled. After about 20 or 30 minutes at the home, Holgum asked Xu and Melissa's sister, Xueng, to come to the police station for interviews. Xu and Xueng agreed. And at approximately 1 p.m., a friend of Xu's drove Xu, his brother, and Xueng to the police station. Upon arriving at the station, Xu and Xueng were replaced in separate rooms. Xu completed a personal information form, and then, after being provided a bottle of water, Detective Holgan began to interrogate Xu. And by 1.56 p.m., Holgan began typing Xu's first statement. At 3.35 p.m., it was signed by Frank Xu. In his first statement, Xu states he had been informed he was not under arrest and was free to leave. Continuing on saying, he and Melissa had known each other since they were children in China, had been married approximately seven years, and had come to the United States in 1987. The couple had one child. On the night of Melissa's death, she and Xu had gotten into an argument over Melissa's lengthy, long-distance phone call to her father in China. She pushed Melissa on the shoulder, and she pushed him back. Xu Wang, Melissa's sister, intervened by pushing Xu and scratching his face. And while Xu Wang and Xu argued, Melissa passed out. She said that wasn't the first time Melissa had passed out. Shuang attempted to revive her by pinching her upper lip. This wasn't working. So Shu called his parents home to find someone to watch their child while he took Melissa to the hospital. Shu's parents, two sisters, brother-in-law, and another sister-in-law arrived, and Shu carried Melissa out to his sister's car. He told a police officer and the nurse at the hospital that Melissa had passed out during an argument and described to them a medical condition Melissa had suffered from for some time. He concluded that he did not do anything to cause his wife's death. Shu's first statement does not contain Miranda warnings, and during the whole first interview, Shu held Melissa's picture and cried a lot. There also seems to be no record of whether Shu took any breaks during the interrogation, implying he remained in the interview room the entire time. He did not ask to terminate the interview or refuse to answer questions, and did not ask to see anyone except for one request where Shu asked to see a friend, but that was denied by Detective Holcomb.
After making his first statement, Shu did not leave the station. It was 6 p.m. on January 6th at this time, when Detectives Evans and Escobar began a second interview with Shu. Unlike Holgan, Evans and Escobar did not tell Shu that he was free to leave or that he was not under arrest. Instead, Evans told Shu he had just spoken to the medical examiner who had determined that Melissa had been strangled. Escobar chimed in with a lie, adding that Shuang, Melissa's sister, had already told them what had happened. But being confronted in this manner made Shu very emotional, and it took him almost 20 minutes to calm down. At approximately 6.55 p.m., Shu signed his second statement. Like Shu's first statement, this statement was written by the detective, with changes being made in broken English by Shu. Also, like the first statement, this one did not contain Miranda warnings. In his second statement, Shu states that Evans told him Melissa had been strangled and was asked if Shu Wang had done it, but Shu replied that Shu Wang had nothing to do with it. Evans responded to him saying that Melissa had to have been strangled either by Shu or Shu Wang, since they were the only two other adults in the house at the time. Shu's second statement continued. At some point, I got really mad and I grabbed her by the throat. I was so mad I don't know how hard I squeezed. She fell to the floor and me and her sister tried to start waking her up. She wouldn't get up and she was turning blue, white. I didn't mean to kill her and this was an accident. I was just upset over something stupid and I really love her very much. I can't believe she's dead. After Xu signed his second statement, an arrest warrant could have been easily obtained, but it was not. As the detectives wanted Xu's statement to be let in at trial, and that could only happen if they let him go home. If they hadn't, they would have had to have explained his second statement was taken during a custodial interrogation. As Evans, Escobar, and Xu were leaving the interview room, Shu threw himself at the floor, began screaming and crying and hitting his head on the floor, saying that he wanted the detectives to kill him, that he did not deserve to live. He wanted the detectives to beat him and shoot him. At this point, one of the detectives informed Shu's friends and relatives that Shu had admitted killing his wife. Shu left the police station at 7 or 8 p.m. on January 6th. He was arrested two days later on January 8th and charged with the murder of his wife, Melissa Wang. Before trial, Xu moved to suppress both his first and second statements because they were not voluntarily made, but were instead the result of the intimidation resulting from the multiple interviews by multiple officers, the small interview room, the refusal to permit Xu's friend into the interview room, She's difficulties with the English language, the lack of an interpreter, and the failure to give Shu Miranda warnings, either orally or on the face of the statements. But after hearing the evidence, the judge allowed both statements to be heard at trial, stating that they were voluntarily made and were not the product of custodial interrogation. 
A custodial interrogation is determined upon whether an individual is in custody for purposes of Miranda. The United States Supreme Court had announced two essential inquiries. One, what were the circumstances surrounding the investigation? And two, given those circumstances, would a reasonable person have felt he or she was not at liberty to terminate the interrogation and leave? According to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, the primary inquiry in making a custody determination is whether a reasonable person would perceive the detention to be a restraint on his movement comparable to formal arrest, given all of the objective's circumstances. Frank Shu was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. On appeal, Shu was granted a new trial based on evidence that his second interview and statement should have been considered a custodial interrogation, and therefore he should have been read his Miranda rights. The court ruled that his second statement should not have been admitted into his first trial, and Shu was granted a retrial. In his second trial, Shu's second statement would not be allowed, but the court did allow his oral statement in, which happened as the detectives started walking out of the interrogation room. At that time, Shu threw himself to the floor and screamed, Beat me! Kill me! I don't want to live for what I've done! The second trial went almost the same as the first one, except this time, Shu was sentenced to just nine years in prison for the murder of his wife. In 2005, she appealed his conviction saying that the court should not have allowed his oral statement into trial. However, that rehearing was overruled on February 13, 2006. The reason I found out about this case was because my mom was actually on the jury, and she agreed to do an interview with me. So here it is. So were you excited to go on a jury summons? I was very excited. I remember my mom being on one, and she was always excited, and I always thought it would be fun. What were the types of questions you were asked by the lawyers? Um, I don't remember exactly, um, but it was... To the point, uh, if there was anything that would, would hinder me being on the jury, and I, of course, said nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> Most people try to get out of jury summons, though. So why did you want to do it? Just because your mom did it and you saw that? or um, I probably was one of the main reasons that I wanted to do it, but I think it's exciting to be involved in something like that and to help out your community. And uh, when did you find out that it was a murder trial? I believe that they told us uh, right away that it was a murder trial. They say like, if you know anyone who's been murdered, those type of things? Like, um, I know that they did ask you if you'd served on a, a murder trial before. Interesting. And um, let's see, 
they did ask the question if if you thought that you couldn't um, find the person guilty in for like uh, death penalty for the death penalty or not too. So um, I can't even remember all of the questions. Yeah. What juror were you? Uh, I don't remember what juror I was. I know I was not foreman, and but I was in the back row. So um, I was probably like, I think eight, maybe. And did y'all have any alternates? Uh, I don't remember if there was. I didn't know who they were. Okay. He was a part of, he had two trials. Which trial were you a part of? Um, I was in his second trial. Okay. And did y'all know anything about the first trial? We had no clue that he had been, had had a trial previous to this. And so much of the information that was in the first trial was not able to be put into this trial. So we didn't know anything. We got a little bit of information after the trial was all over with. Okay. So was it like after the whole trial was over with or just before sentencing began? Because I know certain things can be put in. At sentencing. Yeah. After the whole trial was over with, we didn't, had no clue that he had ever been tried before and had served, I believe it was three years in prison up to that point. Wow. How long was y'all's trial? I've always said that it was 19 days, but I'm not sure if I'm correct in that memory of it being that long. And did y'all have to stay there the whole time? When the trial was over with and we had to go and make a a decision, we were sequestered and we couldn't leave. And so we did spend the night, that one night in the hotel room. Okay. And what were your fellow jurors like? Uh, it was a big diversity of different people. Um, I remember the youngest one was... 18 or 19 and the oldest one was 87 oh wow and um that was very neat to see the difference between the age groups and the different people and on how they came to their decisions of what they were wanting to make how many men or women were uh, on the jury well, the oldest one was a man, and the youngest one was a, a young girl. Um, and there was an older lady, I remember, and me. So that's three, and then another woman. And then there was a couple guys. So it was probably pretty e- equal, but I can't remember. It's been many years ago. <laughs> so you... um do you remember any of the people that testified? Um, I remember her sister uh, testified. Shwane, yeah. She testified. Uh, and it was so confusing to us sitting on the jury because she had said that, you know, he had that her sister had a heart problem and that he had Frank had nothing to do with killing her um that it was a medical reason and we couldn't figure out why she would say that against her sister and that's another thing that's hard in the jury you're only allowed to discuss things that you hear you can't discuss things that you presume is 
happened. And so you have all these thoughts running through your mind, but you really can't verbalize it to the group because then the thoughts are in their mind. Right. So you have to go only what you, you what hear. You hear. Yeah. Interesting. And it's so hard to, if they say that something you're not supposed to remember that, um, it's so hard not to put that in there too, mm-hmm. because you do remember it. Right. What are your thoughts? Cause I'm curious if I have the same thoughts of why the sister said that story, which it could have been the truth. You don't know, but, um, what, what were your thoughts of why she would, uh, side with her brother-in-law instead of her sister? I think it's because, uh, they had a little girl together. Frank and Melissa had a little girl together and Frank's family had custody of the little girl. Oh, okay. And I think that they wanted to be part of that little girl's life. And so they were doing, doing that to be able to have a part of the life. Okay. That's along the same lines as, um, my thought about it because Shuang was there when this all happened and they did say they got in an argument, but then they said that how I read it was, I think Melissa pushed Frank and then Frank pushed her back. And then Shuang came in and pushed Frank and, um, they were fighting. And then what they said was Melissa just passed out and that was what happened or whatever. And then they couldn't get her to wake up. And then they, they took her. But um, the argument was over Melissa talking to her dad in China. And it was too long of a phone call. Mm-hmm. And so my thought is, Shuang is here in the United States. Her family is in China. So this is essentially her family here. Um, so I had a feeling that played a role as well. But I could see the kid playing a role mm-hmm. in that, a big role in that. That's very interesting. I can't remember if the medical examiner was part of the second trial. I know that in the first trial, they had two um, people do autopsies that were later on and talked to try to dispute the medical examiner. But in the second one, I know that they couldn't get the same people from the first trial to dispute her in the second trial. The thing that I remember about the medical examiners, there was two of them. Okay. And one said that the petechia and the bruising on her neck and the petechia in her eyes was caused due to them them cutting her open during the examination. Hmm. And the other one stated that that was the bruising and the petechia was from choking. And so that was, you know, that was another thing when we went back and discussed that it was really difficult because you had two professionals Mm -hmm. stating two different things, you know, about the body. And so um, I believe at that time uh, during when we were doing the discussions, uh, we, talked about how you shouldn't be able to bruise after you're dead mm-hmm. and the petechia wouldn't be in the eyes from the medical exam the being cut right. open and so we did determine that it, it appeared that she had been choked okay and um yeah I'm always curious about that because when you I mean all I, I've never been on a jury so I've only seen it on tv but all you see is like 
the defense just always brings someone that's going to say the complete opposite of what the uh, state is saying or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so I was always just curious, like, does it sway you at all? Or do you just go... I feel like I would go more towards what the prosecution is saying than the defense, depending on the case, I guess. But yeah. I would feel like it wouldn't sway you at all. Did anyone get swayed during that time? I don't. Yet there was lots of discussion on which one was correct. So, yes, there was some of them. And I believe it was the youngest and the oldest one who were uh, the ones that were that were a holdout of finding him guilty okay because they did not they believed the first or the other medical examiner that it was done by cutting the postmortem yeah cut yeah interesting so and i also remember something about the sister did say or somebody did say that he pushed when he pushed her he had her up against the wall like this Oh, okay. So that's... So he could have... he. What I'm saying pushed, what I imagined was like a small shove. No. But... This is like grabbing her and holding her, pushing her up, up against, against the, wall. the wall. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. So you were a part of the second trial. What did you guys... Um, and you said you knew nothing about the first trial. Yeah, right? nothing. There, and that. so much of the information was left out. So um, what I know um, that was specifically left out, why he got a new trial, was because his second statement that he gave to police where he said um, pretty much, you know, I killed her, I did this, I choked her, was not allowed. That's what got him a retrial because that should have been, he should have been given his Miranda rights before that yeah, one. They didn't give him his Miranda rights. Right. They, they, we they allowed him to, um, they allowed him to go home for two days and then arrested him, even though they could have arrested him right then, but then it wouldn't have been able to be used at trial in the way that they wanted it. So, um, so that was interesting, but the second trial, the one that y'all had, they were able to, leave in um what he said to the police as they were leaving the room do you remember what he said during that time i don't think i do can you tell me yeah um i was just wondering if it was like a because the way they said it was the reason why he got convicted again in the second trial was because of these statements but what he said as the officers were leaving he yelled and started screaming and threw himself on the ground and said, beat me, kill me. I don't want to live for what I've done. Something like that. I don't remember that part. So if that, that's not what persuaded me. Okay. That's very interesting because he tried to, after the second trial, he tried to get a retrial again based off of that statement mm. because he wanted it to be put lumped in with the, his second statement but that was when they were walking out so the judge let it in uh, and so he, they were saying like that's the reason why he got convicted again was because of that statement no if if they they didn't they must have glossed over it in the second trial because they it, it doesn't make an impression with me of yeah hearing it so so what was the worst part of being on a jury it was freezing cold oh. in the jury room. I mean, 
I brought a blanket in the next day mm-hmm. and other people did too. So um, it was ice cold. That was the very worst part because you was in that jury room whenever you had to leave the courtroom. Uh-huh. You had to go in that jury room and you could have been in there for hours while they were discussing something. Oh, yeah. And you weren't allowed to leave and you had no phones, no nothing, which I get and understand, but it was freezing. Yeah. I could not (laughs) handle that. The first day was really bad. After that, we all brought things in to wear. Yeah. Yeah. And then what would y'all do when they were just like, um, you know, wanted to talk just to the judge. And so you guys had to leave the room. Were y'all allowed to discuss anything during that time? Or you just waited there in silence? We talked about all other kinds of things, but you weren't supposed to go back and discuss the trial. Okay. When were you allowed to discuss the trial? Like when, like the trial's over for the day? When they said that you could go back and, so most of the time people didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there might've been a little comment here or there. Um, We were allowed to go out to the bathroom. I do believe one of the bailiffs had to take us out to um be able to go go up to the bathroom okay there. and when we left for lunch we would all go together and we'd have a bailiff on the front and a bailiff on the back and they would take us down to lunch and then we'd come back okay um at the end of the day during the trial you could go home but you were told not to read any newspapers or look online for anything watch any news about it and don't don't discuss it with anyone were you tempted uh, I, I was a good girl. <laughs> I can't remember. I was too afraid. Yeah. <laughs> How old was I then at that time? You were uh, under the age of nine because I could have gotten out of going to court because I had a child under the age of nine. Oh, okay. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I bet I would have tried to get you to say everything if I was more like where I am now, yeah. where I'm very interested in this, this topic. But then it was like Scooby Doo was my detective skill. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. so what was your what was your favorite part about being on a jury then? Um, I think just the experience. I loved I would do it again in a heartbeat. And um I'd like to think that I was I would be more skilled, but I really did pay attention and set up straight and tried to watch people's faces and reactions. And then, um, the other favorite part to this was the two bailiffs. They were both named Mike and Mike, and they were just a lot of fun. Bailiff number one, Mike was the one who told us afterwards, Uh I just wanted to tell you so bad what was going on, but I couldn't. He's like the, yeah. So it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of cool to, to see him afterwards and him be able to say, share a little bit of yeah. what he knew from the first trial. Wow. And were you guys um, interviewed by the prosecution or the defense afterwards? No. No? No. I do remember uh, carrying my suitcase going up through the parking garage and Frank's brother <laughs> was in his vehicle oh, no. <laughs> driving out. And I was like... <gasps> Uh, but he didn't, yeah. he didn't do anything or yeah. anything. It was just one of those, one of those moments where you're like, like Oh, I'm all awkward. alone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watch all these shows. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if you were to be on any jury of like the big cases that are out there, like Scott Peterson, OJ Simpson, uh, Casey Anthony, 
Um, which one would you be a part of? There's a staircase guy, um, Michael Peterson. I think the staircase is. guy with the owl. Yes. That would be an interesting one to be on. Yeah. But it'd be so hard because just listening to the certain podcasts I've listened to mm-hmm. and some of the TV shows, you're like, okay, could it have really been an owl? Yeah. I, it could have been. I know. Well, it gets in your head. It does. It gets and in your so head. it so any case that I would go on, I would like to have it all fresh and not yeah. know anything about because I think it, it it does taint your way of thinking mm-hmm. uh, when you hear other other people's opinions and other yes. stories and stuff like that. So exactly, yeah. Well, very cool. Do you think there's anything in the how the jury system works that you think would do better now after being on a jury? I think it is an individual, uh, an individual case by case because. It's not it's not necessarily the jury system that you sit on that for instance the other day I was listening to the OJ Simpson one mm-hmm. and those people were sequestered the whole 8 months. Mm-hmm. If you're sequestered for that long, heck yeah, you're going to want to convict him and get out of there or or the other way. The other way. Mm-hmm. And so you can just go home. Yeah. You know, that sentence only took 4 hours yeah they before were, they come I think to they a, were done <laughs> yeah yeah so i i'm like so that it should be one way or, or the other it shouldn't be you're sequestered for eight months or you're sequestered until we're done right um because that's just, I, to how me, do you think that they should have done that then like you know uh you can only be on a jury for this long and no, you can be on a jury, but you don't have to be sequestered the whole time. I yeah. mean, they were, they, they couldn't go home. They couldn't talk to anybody. They couldn't do anything. They were in the hotel. Yeah. They were in trial and then the hotel. I was like, mm. that I mean, it crazy. And when you go into your hotel, they take out the telephones. They take out the TV. So what do you do? What? You don't do nothing. And they put you with a stranger. So wait, were you guys sequestered? Yeah. For one day. One oh, night. okay. Yeah. What, what night was that? The very last night. The, okay. So when you were trying to decide. Yeah, the next day we just, you know, had the verdict. So. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like you were in trial for 19 days I or believe, around that time. Yeah. And then you, they were like, okay, you know, jury, go back, make your decision. Was it y'all talked that night and then you didn't make a decision. So you, no, we couldn't come up. We couldn't come up with a decision by the time the time, the time was done, it was getting too late. And so they're like, okay, we'll just keep you, we'll sequester you overnight. Okay. And then tomorrow you can have your full time to discuss and do whatever. But we did do a little bit of discussion, uh, the night before. Okay. And there was times where we could talk about it during the trial too. Um, right. Just not openly. Right. All the time, whatever. And how many hours did it take y'all? Because you said there was two holdouts, right? There was two holdouts. I know that we were out of the, I think it was that next morning when we went back into the room and came in, because I think we were out of there by noon. Okay. It might have been somewhere between noon and two. 
So, and then did your foreman, whoever it was, did they have to stand up and say guilty or so? But I don't even remember that part. And then did you guys get to choose the amount of years and all that stuff? Yes. And that was that was how we decided on the two that didn't want. They pretty much decided the time and the years that he would get. Okay. Stuff because they're like, okay, we'll convict him mm-hmm. guilty, but we don't want him to serve the years. And so I think it, we gave him 10 years. It was nine, nine, nine is what years, I saw. Yeah. Nine years, but he already served three. three. And so the bailiff or the bailiff, one of the bailiffs, Mike, said, well, they're both Mike, <laughs> said, um, that he'd probably get out in two to three years. Okay. Out of the nine-year sentence. Wow. Were you guys shocked when you found out that his first sentence was 25 years? I don't know if I knew that. Oh, his first sentence was 25 years. Well, yeah, because we didn't know that he was ever convicted before. Right. And um, you saying that? Yeah. So. Well, cool. Yeah. So once once we heard that, though, after we convicted him the second time, we were all relieved knowing that you weren't. Yeah, the first. Right. Because that is that does weigh on you. This guy's life is in your hands, too. Right. You know, um, you could change you change a whole bunch of people's lives. Mm -hmm. So. Well, thanks, Mom. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yep. I want to say a huge thank you to Case Text and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. That is it for season four. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.